Romans chapter 1 a little bit. We'll start in verse 14 and read to verse 17, and then I want us, if you just want to find it right away, I want you to put your finger in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Um, And then during the sermon, I'll try to connect those dots. But let me read this here from the beginning. Romans chapter 1, verse 14. Paul says, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And I jump over to chapter 3, starting in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed, made known, Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me just pray for us one more time. Father, we look to your word, we look to your, we need your grace, we need your mercy, we need your help. We need your help today. We need your help right now in these moments. Please, Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from your word. Uh, what I'm going to say this morning is probably going to be a little bit offensive, okay? Uh, and it's not just going to be offensive because I'm going to talk about sin um, and talk about our unrighteousness in view of God's righteousness. It's primarily probably going to be offensive to all of you in here who would say that you're a Christian, who would say that you understand the gospel, who would say that um, you know what the gospel is and that you've heard it from the time you were a little kid and of course I know the gospel. Uh, I'm not trying to be offensive just for the sake of being offensive, but I have been deeply, deeply moved, convicted, renewed, strengthened. There's a new hunger inside of me as we've just been reading through Romans um, for the last couple weeks, and I think Romans, the end of the book, is is kind of on the agenda for those of you that are doing it um, for this week as well, too. But guys, I have a renewed hunger that we get the gospel right, that we get it correct. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of times we don't. We don't. We're not fully wrong 
we're not preaching something that doesn't have some truth to it, but we're leaving out many times the most important part of it. Let me give you an illustration. I, you guys know that my favorite restaurant is Carabas. Probably my favorite uh, type of food is Italian food. Anybody Italian in here? God bless the Italians. I love Italian food. Uh, pasta, pizza, sauce, noodles, what could be better, right? Um, imagine that you too love Italian food and you want everybody else to love Italian food. And so you tell people that have never had Italian food about this glorious Italian food and how much you love it. And you're just saying, man, it, you've got to have Italian food. It's the best. You've never had anything like Italian food before. I mean, no matter what you've had, like Italian is awesome. And you're hyping this thing up and you, you really are kind of sin sincerely excited. And so you say, come on over to my house. I'm going to invite you over for dinner and I'm going to cook some Italian. I'm going to get you Italian. And so, you know, they're excited, you're excited. You have them over. They sit down for dinner and you bring over to the table a bowl of SpaghettiOs. And that's, that's your definition of Italian. And you're like, see, Chef Boyardee, man, he was right here on the label when I dumped it, when I dumped it out of the can. Now listen, praise God for SpaghettiOs, amen? And Chef Boyardee, if he was real. That's not Italian. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Italian... Uh, we had some good time. Matt and Jill got married last night, Friday night at their rehearsal dinner. We had lasagna. And man, this lasagna was like, it was like this thick. It was, it was homemade. It was, there was layers of, you know, cream cheese and sauce and cheese and I don't know what else in there, but it was, but it was good. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about good Italian food. I'm not talking about SpaghettiOs. And here's what's, here's what's sad about it is that we would then tell people that this is what Italian food is when it isn't. But it's also sad because I think sometimes we think that's what Italian food is. It's not. But what I'm saying now in, in, in regards to the gospel is that what we, many times what we've accepted, and it's okay, like, I mean, the SpaghettiOs will get you by for a little while at least, but what's sad about it is, is that we, we think that we've embraced, we think that we understand the fullness of what the gospel is, when in reality, we've just, we've just been eating SpaghettiOs. And Romans, from beginning to end, I mean, Paul has a brief introduction in the first 15 verses or so, and then in verse 16 and 17, he shifts, and he is going to give the most, it's not exhaustive, but it is by far and away the most comprehensive declaration of the gospel that you'll find anywhere in the book of the Bible. Um, and guys, I, I so, I just so want us to get this. And again, as always, I, I try to go just verse by verse, I try to take time and when I make a point or say something, I, I try to show you where it's at in the Bible and, and I especially want to do that this morning. But I just I want you just to, again, maybe just to even pray for a second in your own heart that God would help you to see the truth of what's here this morning. Because I'm, 
I'm convicted and I'm concerned that over the long haul of your life, that when, as Alan was saying, like when, when there's difficulties and when there's trials, I just, I, SpaghettiOs aren't going to get you through. You need something better than that. You need something fuller than that, something more robust than that. Something that's going to fill you up. And uh, Romans is a tremendous gift. Let, let me just get into it here. And, and let me frame it this way. Okay, I want us to examine our gospel. I want to f- go about this by framing it in kind of an application type of way this morning. And asking a couple questions about the gospel that we preach and the gospel that we've received. And the first question I would want to ask is, does the gospel that you believe and the gospel that you preach say anything, anything about God's righteousness, about his wrath, and about our unrighteousness apart from him? Please look at verse 16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God. In this message is God's power for salvation. For everyone who simply believes, Jew or Greek, doesn't matter. But now look at verse 17. For, for, for in this gospel, so, so the, the question here is, you, you got to ask questions of Paul. He's, he's arguing. It, it's, 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 uh, they call this type of literature a, a, a diatribe. He's, he's anticipating questions. He's probably questions that he himself has asked of the text, not just other people, not just opponents, but the questions that he's asked. And then he kind of asks those questions, and then he answers those questions. And he says, this gospel, this good news, it is the power of God unto salvation. Why, Paul? Why? is this the power of God and salvation? How is this powerful? Here's his answer, verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And you're like, well, yeah, Eric, I've heard that verse. Like, I memorized that, you know, in you know, vacation Bible school or Sunday school growing up. Like, I know those verses. Well, let, let me just, let, let me read it the wrong way. And let me read it how I think sometimes if, if, if we were writing the book of Romans as American Christians, how I think we would write this and how we just kind of tend to not really understand what he's saying here, but how we just kind of tend to gloss over it and kind of, well, well this is actually what he means, but it's not what he actually means. Let me read it the way I think we would write it if we were writing this. We would say, you know, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God and salvation for all who believe. And then in verse 17, we would say, for in it, the love of God is revealed. For in it, the compassion of God is revealed. For in it, the kindness of God is revealed. Now hear me. We're going to talk about love. We're going to get there. But that's not what it says. What it says is that the good news of this gospel is that there is a righteousness revealed from God. And then you would ask the next question. Oh, well, Eric, okay, well, okay, so the righteousness is you know, revealed here. Why is that good news? Verse 18. For... The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Not are ignorant of the truth, not don't know the truth, not have never heard the truth, but we suppress the truth. We don't want it. 
You say, well, does everybody really know the truth, Eric? I thought that's what we need to, to, to go preach to them. Well, we go preach to them the gospel, which is also the truth, the truth of how God is able to make us righteous. But here's why we are all guilty. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Plain to them being everybody, the entire world. Because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they, they being everybody, so that they are without excuse. Now we're going to get here again. So, so what's happening between chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and the reason I had you jump over to chapter 3, verse 21, is because you'll notice, look at the, connect these dots, verse 17 of chapter 1, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Now look at chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Almost, it, it's almost the same thing. He's saying the same thing, just a slightly different word. In, seven, in 117 he says revealed. In uh, 321 he uses the word manifested, which means to reveal or to make known. So Paul has this long flow of thought between He's talking about the righteousness of God in between chapter 1, verse 17, and between chapter 3, verse 21, he's going to give a long argument as to why this righteousness is so necessary and why it is such good news. Because between uh, verse 17 of chapter 1 and chapter 3, verse 21, what he's going to say is that there is not a single person on the face of the earth, nor has there ever been, apart from Jesus Christ, that is righteous. And we are all, we all stand naturally born children of wrath, worthy of eternal punishment, separated from God forever. This is the gospel. It is unbelievably good news. And yes, there is love, and yes, there is compassion, and yes, there is kindness, and we will we'll get there eventually, but could we just stop for just a second, and could we please just ask ourselves that in the gospel that we've preached, in the gospel that we've believed, have we believed the gospel that Paul's talking about, that God is talking about when he's talking about the gospel? Are you with me? This is again where you know, Paul's eventually going to come this week, we'll read in Romans chapter 12, that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. The way that we are changed is by getting into this book and reading this book and not imposing upon this book what we think this book ought to say, but by letting this book read us and, and, and pin us down and transform us in the, way that we, in the way that we think. Again, I think what we would say is the gospel is the power of God to salvation, for in it the love of God is revealed. And then I think somewhere in verse 18 we would say, for God just can't stand that you would live your life without purpose. And God just can't stand that you would not live your best life now. And listen, does God have plans for your life? Absolutely. Does God want to give you a purpose? Absolutely. But that's not your biggest problem. It's not my biggest problem. Our biggest problem, apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ, is that the wrath of God is against us. So does your gospel mention anything about righteousness and wrath? And then, right along with that, does your gospel include a 
biblical definition of sin. Not a man-made definition, but a biblical definition of sin. And this is so important. Because when we talk about sin, what we tend to talk about is on a horizontal plane, one person doing something bad to another person, and that is sin, but that, that doesn't go deep enough. That's not at the heart of sin. Um, the heart of sin is that each and every single one of us has rejected God. Let me show you this again. Again, verse 18, he talks about this ungodliness and this unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We keep it down. We don't want to hear it. The heavens declare the glory of God. But we don't want to worship this God, this creator. We want to worship the creation. Jump down to verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became foolish or futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. This is sinful, unregenerate man, which all of us at one time were, if we now know Jesus. Verse 23, and what did they do? They exchanged the glory of God. They exchanged the glory of God. Nothing in the universe is more precious than the glory of God. There's nothing greater than God himself. God, there's no greater gift that he could give you than himself, and that's what he does. We were made to behold his glory, but in our sin, we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up. He says, you want it, you got it. Go ahead. In the lusts of their hearts to impurity for the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And then, verse 25, again, look at this definition of sin. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And here it is. And they worshipped. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now here's the thing. Paul hasn't said one thing about anybody hurting anybody else yet. That's coming. That's coming. If you read just a few verses later, he's going to go through a whole list in rapid fire succession of all sorts of sins. But I want you to notice that right now, all of the world stands condemned, and they stand condemned because of the way that they have not worshipped God, which is what they were created to do, which is what we were created to do. And so when I ask, does your gospel contain a biblical definition of sin, you, you can't disconnect this from the question I asked, er, asked earlier, that, that does your gospel say anything about the righteousness of God and about his wrath? One of the things that's very in vogue today, um, and actually this Wednesday even come out, well, they'll talk about this a little bit in this, this documentary we're going to show called The American Gospel, uh, Christ Alone, and, and um, is that there's quite a wide movement, um, and there always has been, there always has been, um, false teaching in the church, that wants to talk about how there's no way that hell is eternal. There's no way that hell is forever. 
And when you trace it back, you can kind of see what they're saying if you have the same definition of sin as them. Because what they'll say is, so let's say, for example, that I hurt Tracy, or Tracy hurts me. Now that's sin, that's wrong, okay? But how can an infinite being like myself hurting, or I'm sorry, a finite being, that was important, how can a finite being like myself, thank you Lord for helping me catch that, a finite being like myself hurting another finite being like Tracy, or vice versa, her hurting me? How can finite beings committing finite sin be worthy of infinite punishment? And the answer is, it's not if that's all that sin is. But that's not at the heart of sin. The heart of sin is that each one of us finite beings who were created by him, and again, the, the, the theme throughout the Bible, and we don't have time to look at this, but whenever you're talking about, whenever it talks in, in, in creator and creature language, the idea behind it almost always is that that creator can do whatever he wants with the creature. The creature doesn't get to say, why did you make me like this? Why are you, how dare you? No, no, no. The creator gets to do what he wants. And so when we understand that at the heart of sin is not just what we do on the horizontal plane, but it's on the vertical plane, is that we were made by God and for God, for his glory, to display his image and to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory, but that each and every single one of us, instead of accepting that, instead of worshiping him, instead of acknowledging him, giving thanks to him, honoring him as he deserves to be honored, the heart of our sin is that we have each decided to worship other things. We have suppressed the truth about who he is and who we are in light of being created by him. And that sin, my friends, is worthy of eternal punishment. It is. And it is, and I'm saying that not as just something that's extrapolated out, but as something that the Bible clearly says. Clearly. And again, let me, let me just talk here because I, you know, I'm a pastor. I love you. You're like, Eric, I do not feel the love right now. But in wanting to shepherd you well, guys, I, I cannot, we, we cannot shrink away from the truth of the word of God. And the truth is, is that even if you know Jesus as your savior, I would almost be willing to bet my bottom dollar that every one of us has walked in here this morning with an attitude towards sin that is way, 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 way too flippant. and does not take it nearly as seriously as it, we should. Because the good news of the gospel is that God created a way for us in all of our wickedness and in all of our sin, yes, to be loved by him, but in order to be loved by him, we had to first be made righteous. That's your greatest need. That is the world's greatest need. 
It's not just to have purpose or just to, 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 to not be depressed or, or to not have anxiety. And God cares about all those things, but that's not the greatest need. The greatest need is that you be made righteous. How can that happen? How will that happen? How can people who have rejected an infinitely glorious and good God, how can they be made righteous? There's one answer. It is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, quickly, again, I, we just don't have time. <coughs> chapter uh, 1, verses 18 through 32, through the end of the chapter, is talking about all of humanity um, in all of the world. David Platt, I love the way he, he, he says this. He says, he says he gets asked all the time, what about the innocent guy in the middle of the jungle in Africa or in South America or in Papua New Guinea who's, who's never heard? Surely that guy isn't under the wrath of God, is he? And, and, and David Platt says, um, no, the, the innocent guy in the middle of the jungle, jungle, he's absolutely not under the wrath of God. The only problem is the innocent guy in the middle of the jungle does not exist. There are no innocent people. And then you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, man, you know, we, we, we need to go tell them. Well, chapter two is all about this, folks, and for those of us that grew up in Holmes County, there's no innocent people that grow up in church either. There's no innocent, just because you grew up Mennonite or Baptist and, you know, you can trace it all the way back and your mama and your daddy and your grandpa and their, their grandmas, you know, and we've, you know you've, you've dressed conservative or, you know, you, you've, you've got the right doctrine as Baptist rather than Mennonites or, or you know, non-denominational or whatever it is, you're not righteous apart from Christ. Nobody is. Nobody. And so after accusing all of the world in chapter one and, and that everybody is under you know, the wrath of God because the, the, the pagans, they've just suppressed the truth. We, we don't want it. Paul anticipates the argument. Yeah, but Paul, I didn't, I grew up in church, baby. Not me. I don't practice homosexuality. I don't steal. I don't murder. I don't do those things. Chapter two, verse one, therefore you have no excuse, O man, Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, and, and here, the sarcasm here, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. In chapter one, it's people that grow up with no religion in some ways and, and they suppress the truth of God and they openly rebel, they openly defy and they openly say, declare that we, we will not worship this God. But in chapter 2, the religious folks, they think that they are God. Because only God has the right to judge. It, it, essentially, if I could put this, again, just summing this up briefly. We don't have time. I want to get to chapter 3. But chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, if you think of the story of the prodigal son, is the story of the younger son that goes off, says, Dad, I don't care about you. I just want your stuff. Give it to me. I'm going. I'm going to live on my own. But then chapter 2 through the beginning of chapter 3 is about the older son. That even though he was in the father's house, he wasn't anywhere near the father's heart. And he didn't love the father. And Tim Keller explains this beautifully. I, I, I love this book. One of my favorite books, The Prodigal God. I've read from it before. And again, exp talking about the older son here, or also... Uh, 
the Jews and the religious folks, people that Paul is describing in Romans chapter 2. He, said, what is, he says, what is the problem? He says, pride in good deeds rather than remorse over bad deeds was keeping the older son out of the feast of salvation. He says, as one of my teachers in seminary put it, the main barrier between the Pharisees or the religious folks, the folks that are described in chapter 2, the folks that many of us grew up religious, the main barrier, barrier between the Pharisees and God is not their sins, but their damnable good works. He says, what must we do then to be saved? To find God, we must repent of the things we have done wrong. But if that is all you do, you may remain just an older brother. He says, to truly become Christians, we must also repent of the reasons that we ever did anything right. Pharisees only repent of their sins, but Christians repent of the very roots of their righteousness too. We must learn how to repent of the sin under all other sins and under all our righteousness, the sin of seeking to be our own Savior and Lord. Again, we just don't have time, but that's chapter 2. And then you come to chapter 3, the beginning of it, in verse 9. And Paul asks this question. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Are we religious folks any better off? What's his answer? Chapter 3, verse 9. No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, both religious and non-religious, are under sin. As it is written, <coughs> none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use the, their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. Now, verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified, will be declared righteous, that means, in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, verse 21, and now we're back and Paul's connected these dots. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. And that, I, it's a big Bible word, and I'm sure most of us have not used it in our vocabulary this past week. But what propitiation means is that it's the idea of absorbing anger. It's the idea of absorbing wrath. And Jesus did that for us 
the one whom God put forward, verse 25, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And, and, and listen, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, now listen, you, you, I mean, you know, if you got kids, you got to have some forbearance, right? Just, ugh. you, you got to be patient at times, although you love them. But this, God in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, not, not swept them under the rug, but he was waiting. He was waiting till the time in history when he would send his son to absorb his wrath. In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Verse 26, listen to this phrase again. Please see this. It was to show his righteousness. Are, are, you, are you seeing? Here, here's what Paul's saying. Here's what I want you to see. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God. Beginning of verse 22, the righteousness of God. Middle of verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness. Beginning of verse 26, it was to show his righteousness. Now, I still hang with me. Love is coming, but what I want to point out again is that the argument here is Paul is not saying, God did all this to show you his love. The argument that he's making is that he did this to show you his righteousness. That he was not willing in the least to sweep the smallest sin under the rug and to not deal with it. There had to be a penalty that was paid. Somebody had to absorb the wrath of God. Somebody had to be a propitiation for our sins. And that person was Jesus. And if he does not do this, we can never be made righteous. And if we cannot be made righteous, there is no way that the love of God can be expressed to us. Are you following me? And Paul's whole point here, like, like the climax of this, of, 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 this, of this argument here, at this point in the letter, is not just, in, again, in any way just so that, you know, well, now, you know, we lack purpose, and now we can have purpose, and, you know, and, and, and now, you know, I was kind of wondering and didn't know my way, and, you know, now I know that, you know, God, God loves me. He, he's saying, God did all of this so that you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is righteous to the uttermost. See, and this is kind of my final question to you in, like, in, in the gospel that you preach, in the gospel that you've, you've believed. You know, I've said, does your gospel have anything to do, or does it mention anything about righteousness and wrath, and does it have a biblical definition of sin? Here's the last question, is does the gospel that we believe in, the gospel that we preach, have anything to do or say anything about God's unwavering passion for his own glory? Because this is what he says here, verse 26, please look at it with me carefully. He says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time, now that Jesus has come, so that he, God, might be, this is one of the most important phrases in all of the scripture, and, I, and we never even think about it. So that he, verse 26, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because again, at the outset, there's a big problem. God is really holy, God is really righteous, we're really not. How in the world will he remedy this? 
either destroy us all, which would magnify his righteousness and his justice and his goodness. Because even if he chose to do that, it would still show his utter commitment to goodness and to righteousness and to wholeness. But he found an even better way that he could be both just and the justifier. And that was to send his son as a penalty, as a substitute for the punishment that we deserve on the cross. And and guys, this, this matters deeply. And this isn't just a side issue. This is at the heart of the gospel that we must believe. Because if you don't believe this, let me tell you something, you're just eating SpaghettiOs. If you don't believe this, then you've never, you've never even tasted good Italian food. I said I was going to get to the love of God. Paul mentions love in a little in chapter one in his introduction, but then the first time that it's mentioned is in chapter five. And again, there's a long argument here that he's been making about the nature of the gospel. And the good news is that it meets our greatest need, and our greatest need is to be made righteous because we're not. But he gets to love, and th- this is why this is so precious. Okay, he, he says, for while we were still weak at just the right time, this is chapter five, verse six, he's mentioned love one other time just a few verses earlier, or actually the, the verse before, that the love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Verse six, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, that's us, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But listen, here it is. But God shows his love. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You hear what he's saying? He's like, verse 7, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Like, like you, know, if, if, you know, if I think Robbie's really worth it, I, you know, Robbie's a pretty good guy. I'll, I'll give my life for Robbie. You know, if I, I, but I want like a good return on my investment. You know what I mean? That's how man loves, but that's not, that's not God's love. God's love is while we were still sinners, when we were absolutely, positively unworthy of it, he displays his love by coming and dying for us. But in that, he is declaring that he is absolutely, positively righteous. You've heard me say this before, and I, and I think sometimes you don't know what to do with it, but I'll say it again, and I'll just tell you to go back and read Romans over and over and over and over and over again, as I've been doing over the last couple of weeks, because I needed to be reminded of it. What I've said before is this, is that God did not die for you just because you were intrinsically worth so much. He died for you because your sin costs that much. And if you don't get that right, you flip grace on its head. And 
And here's why this is good, good news. Is the best way I can explain it is, you know, and we, again, had Matt and Jill's wedding last night, and, you know, so, you know, everybody's happy, and everybody's, you know, because everybody's in love and all that. And I, I was thinking about this past week about, you know, uh, this, in February, Hannah and I celebrated our 18th wedding anniversary. And, um, you know, man, I was, I look back at the wedding photos, I was skinny, dude. I was seriously skinny. I was like, 20, 30 pounds, I look pretty good. Had my tux on, was looking all nice. Praise the Lord, Hannah said, I do. And, you know, here we are. And, you know, but years later, and you guys, you know, know, know this story, but like, but there's a difference between that type of love, when everybody looks right and everybody looks good, and saying, I do. There's a difference between that type of love and the love that I felt from Hannah when I broke my neck and couldn't barely move and was sitting there in a hospital gown. And not to be too grotesque, but this is, I mean, it just was what it was. Like I couldn't barely move and had a catheter in with a pee bag hanging beside my wheelchair. But there's a difference between a wedding day love and and then loving me when I'm like that. And see, the reason why this whole argument about righteousness is good news is because some of you, it, the, the, when things get hard, and they will, here's why the SpaghettiOs won't get you through. Here, here's what the SpaghettiOs are. Here's the SpaghettiO gospel, okay, that we preach. Is we preach a sentimental Valentine's Day, Hallmark greeting card, chick flick, romantic comedy type of love. How'd you like that? That's our definition of love. We say God loves you like that. No, that's not how God loves you. God chose you in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Theologians talk about, again, we, 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 we grasp for language sometimes to try to describe the love of God and, and the covenants that God made, but there's several covenants throughout the Bible. You have the Davidic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the new covenant, all these different things, but, but before all of those, you have what theologians refer to as the covenant of redemption, and the covenant of redemption was a covenant that that happened before the foundation of the world in all of eternity past between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And before any of this ever happened, they, met, they, they, didn't, they, they, they came together. And again, it's not mean God and Jesus jumps in and says, no, I'll go for him and wrestles the, you know, wrestles the rod out of God's hands. But they covenanted together as the perfect trinity that they are in all of eternity past, laying this whole thing out knowing all that was going to occur and knowing all that it would cost. And while we were still, you know, paralyzed, sitting in our wheelchair with our pee bag hanging beside us, God said, I'll love him anyway. I'll love him anyway. That's the type of love that the Father showed us. And that's the type of love, I believe, the only type of love that will get you through to the end because God's love is not just based upon you, it's based upon the fact that he is love and that he is, he is, as, he is, so, he is as committed to loving you as he is to upholding his own glory. And you say, to what degree was he willing to uphold his own glory? He was willing to send his son. 
And as Paul was going to say later on in this letter, if he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Amen? Got a lot more I want to say. Worship to me, you can come up, and that way I can't go too long, okay? But just a couple things uh, as we close. Um, guys, I, as your pastor, I, I know you heard me say this before, but I've just, I've just been so uh, just convicted and, and urged to exhort you again this morning, th- this past week, please, 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 read this book. Please. Because there's so much false teaching and there are so many false gospels that are being taught today. And I want to do my absolute best to not just entertain you in any way, but to come up here week after week and to feed you from this book. But I'm telling you right now, my sermons nor any other man's sermons, they're they're not enough. You got to get in this. And yeah, Romans is is some tough sledding. There's a lot of fours and therefores and because and ands and buts and, you know, so that's and just likes and all the, read it and then read it again and read it again and then pray some more and ask him to help you to understand it and then read it some more and get in it. You know, worship team, I was praying for you this morning um, well, during, the, during the prayer time. Uh, I mean, for everybody, but just especially, you know, like Logan and Tier and I don't know, I, I don't mean to sound like, I don't want to sound like that old grandpa guy not because I'm not I'm not that old but like you guys are younger than me I was just thinking about like those of you like like in your 20s some of you like guys I if you're in your 20s when when you're 40 are you gonna know this better than you know it now or are you still gonna be eating SpaghettiOs You, you you have you have to own this the book, of, the book of Romans and all of the Bible is given to us for a reason and it's given to us so that you might feed your own soul and that you might nourish your own soul and that your roots might go down deep and that you might be strong. And I hope that on the one hand every week when we come together that I do in some way feed you but I also hope that in the same way I feed you and then in the same way that you are on some level satisfied that you are also hungrier than you were. And my prayer would be that when you leave here and you go home this afternoon, that yeah, listen, we all, I mean, I love my Sunday afternoon nap and I praise God for it every single week. But I hope that when you go home and after you take your nap or whatever, that you don't just mindlessly just turn on the television, but that you reach for this book. And not just Sundays, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday as well. That you get in this book until it gets, until it gets down into you. Secondly, that, like guys, this, this truth that all of the world is condemned. All of the world stands condemned. Religious, non-religious. Right, right outside these doors and on the other side of the world. Apart from Jesus, there is an obligation that we have to share the gospel. 
This is if you go back to the beginning of those verses in verse 14 and 15 that I read earlier in chapter 1. Paul says, I am under obligation. He felt a sense of obligation. Verse 15, he says, so I'm also eager to preach the gospel. That he was obligated and that he was eager. Does this attitude mark your life? And if that attitude does not mark your life, if you don't feel any obligation and if you don't feel any eagerness to share the gospel, then go back and read it again. Until the Holy Spirit takes his precious word and uses it to convict your heart. And lastly, just one other thing. I I just pray that, you know, and I think, you know, Hannah said it this morning during the opening, Conrad usually says it, is that communion, we do take it here every week, and it is important to us. But I pray that today and every week, as we come together and as we take it, again, going through, walking up front and grabbing the bread and the juice, that does not save you. But what it represents does. But I pray that as we take communion every week as part of our worship, that it would take on new and deeper and fuller meaning. That Jesus Christ chose to love us when we were not lovable. He chose to love us because he is love. And so I just, as we come here and as we we wrap up, if you're helping serve communion, please. Please come forward. I pray that we would search our hearts and that we would come with a deep reverence, with a deep respect, with a deep honor.